You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's, and today we're going to continue our series of Ecclesiastes as we kind of find ourselves uh, towards the end of the book and kind of this final big section before we wrap it up at the end. Uh, And really, the Ecclesiastes has been confronting us with this question. We've titled this series, Life Under the Sun. And the question, one of the questions we've been confronted with, is there meaning in this life? Is there meaning in life under the sun? And today we're going to find ourselves confronted with that question once again, specifically with the topic of death. Now, uh, years ago, when uh, Abby was, was pregnant with our first child, uh, Ellie, we had this routine that we would do every Thursday with another couple. Uh, we invited this couple over. We would have ice cream, because that's what Abby wanted, and what Abby wanted went at that time, right? And we'd have ice cream that night, and we'd watch this TV show called This Is Us. Anybody ever seen this show? All right, so you get, you get some good ice cream, and you cry a lot, and it's a perfect night. Uh, watching This Is Us is a very emotional show, right? And uh, when it first came out, we'd watch it every Thursday with this other couple, and the show really is this fascinating story. It's the story of this journey back and forth in time uh, between these three siblings. They call themselves the Big Three. And they're journeying back in time to kind of cope with or try to understand what life is like with the, the passing of their father. The show's really revolving around this intermingling of life and death, this, 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 this kind of constant back and forth that you can't think of life without death, and you can't think of death without life. And it's all centered around their father, Jack Pearson, who died suddenly after they had a house fire when they were teenagers. And perhaps one of the most vivid examples of this battle, this back and forth between this intermingling between life and death comes in one of the final episodes of the show. Again, it's a tearjerker. And, and, and they're back into the hospital after the fire. Uh, they're going back in time when Jack Pearson just got out of the hospital, or he's still in the hospital, but he just got released from the, the doctor's office, and he's in the lobby. And they're just checking to make sure that he was okay after inhaling a lot of smoke from the fire. And he's sitting in the lobby, and there's this other dad sitting there. And this dad is just, he, he's just a mess, because his family had just got in a car wreck. And their youngest son, their youngest child, is in a very severe state. Like, he may not make it through the night. And he's a wreck, and so, so Jack tries to offer him comfort in the moment. And then all of a sudden, you, you pan over and you see the doctors who were caring for Jack are now rushing to the surgery of this little boy. And within minutes, Jack dies of a heart attack. And this boy is miraculously rescued. And in that one hospital uh, setting, within moments, you see this intermingling between life and death. That death takes a man suddenly, unexpectedly, and then another one is saved from sudden death. You see, when we think about life and death, they're really two sides of the same coin. You can't think of one without the other and vice versa. And, and here's why I, I start with this today, because it, it really hits home with all of us in this room. Because as, as I look out in this room and I see your, your beautiful faces, there are some of you who I know and some of you who I don't know. And, and here's, what I, here's what I do know. It'd be really hard for us to find something that we all have in common here today. Like for me to get up here and try to find something that we all have common ground on would be very difficult. Some of you like meat and steak, and some of you are vegetarians. Bless your hearts, right? I mean, you just you got it wrong, but it's okay, right? Uh, some of you are married, and some of you are not, right? Uh, some of you have kids, and some don't. Some of you like politics way too much, and some of you can care less, right? Some of you think Texas is the greatest state ever, and others not so much, right? I can't believe I had to say that in D.C. There's way too many of you. The point is, it would be really hard for me to try to find 
some way in which we all have common ground here today. But Ecclesiastes in chapter 9 actually tells us there is a common ground. There is something that we have in common, and it's this, this event that unites us all. It actually knits us all together in this room. And it's going to sound pretty morbid, but the same event affects us all, and that's death. The common ground that we have today is death. Now, I know that seems like a, a, a mood killer, right? Like to start off that, right? But what I want you to see, what I want to propose to you today is as we look at Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, is this. That to the degree we're able to confront death and understand its place in life under the sun will directly affect the quality of our living. To the degree that we are able to confront death and understand its place in this life under the sun will directly affect the quality of our living. In other words, joy and enjoyment of this life is directly affected by the way we look at death. And Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is going to help us understand this. So our main idea of this text is going to be the main idea that we've said time and time again of the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's this, that life has meaning in God. In other words, if we want to understand that life has meaning in God, we have to understand what the Bible says about death so that we can experience meaning in our living and so our outline is going to flow straight from the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to see the first point being the evil of death. And then we'll see the wisdom we need. The wisdom we need to live with death. So the evil of death and the wisdom we need. Now, way of uh, recap to catch us up to speed where we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Uh, we've said from, from the beginning of this, that this book is really, it's a really good book to study. For two reasons. Really, there's, there's perhaps two, two different types of people in this room right now. Perhaps you're in this room and you're kind of struggling to understand who God is or if there even is a God. And I would say Ecclesiastes is a great book for you because we've said it's written from this perspective of a practical secularist. And it's written from this perspective of someone who perhaps believes there's a God, but looks at this life under the sun, meaning the physical world, and sees that this is all we have for life in meaning. This is all we have to find satisfaction. And another way we could say that Ecclesiastes is written in such a way that it's a perspective of life without reference to the afterlife or to heaven, to life above the sun. But it's also good for us who are believers in this room because it forces us to ask the question, do I have the type of faith that can answer the vanity and the brevity of life? Do I have that type of faith that can answer the real hard questions of the, the vanity and the brevity of this life? And Solomon's been challenging us in this book to ask that question. How do we find meaning in life? And he starts with, with seeking knowledge and education, then satisfaction and, and pleasure, and then, and then work and money. And, and now towards the final chapters, really from chapter 6 to 10, he really deals with wisdom. It's a focus on living wisely. And he says, even if I live wisely, will that give me the ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction I desire? And in the end, he comes to the same conclusion over and over and over, and that is that it's vanity in the end. Now, why is it vanity in the end every time? It's because over and over and over, Ecclesiastes reminds us that death just steals our ability. It steals our ability to have true, lasting fulfillment, enjoyment, and satisfaction in life. Perhaps another way to look at this, I saw this tweet this week from a pastor, Dane Ortland, and he says, it's kind of like Ecclesiastes is going through these different life stages with us. He says, I, I, I wonder if the flow of Ecclesiastes is meant to follow the, the flow of common idolatries through the seasons of life. Right? Chapter one is knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge and education, which we typically do in our 20s. Chapter two is the pursuit of, of possessions, which typically we increase in our 30s. 
Chapter three is like this midlife crisis that you realize the brevity of life, right? That you don't control time. And then chapter, uh, chapter five is really, uh, as we talked about last week, this, this idea of wealth and greed and, and even honor growing in that. We typically see that later in life in our 50s. And then chapter six onward, it's like we're kind of settling in the wisdom. How do, we, how do we take all this and live wisely in this world? And today, that's what we're going to focus on how to really live wisely in this world with confronting this big topic of death. See, chapter 6 and 7 really focus on wisdom in harsh realities and the adversity of life. And then chapter 8 focuses on how we live wisely in authority. And chapter 10 focuses on how we live wisely in our reputation, our speech. But all of it is centered around what he's going to say here in chapter 9. That if we want to know what it looks like to live wisely in all those other areas, we have to confront, finally come face to face with this thing that continues to pop up time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is death. Death. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Now let's look at the evil of death, verse 1 of chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, Man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So Solomon is, is teaching us a few things about death. The first thing is that it's, uh, it's inevitable and it's equal. It's inevitable and it's equal. What I mean by inevitable is that death comes for us all. It's in all of our futures. It's an event that we have to attend. It's, it's an appointment that we can't cancel, right? He says it's, in our, it's inevitable. It's in the future of the children of man. Chris Rock had a, had a, a kind of a, a comedy bit about this, about uh, predicting the future. He says, I, and he looked at his audience, he said, I have a horoscope for all of you. Gemini, you're going to die. Aquarius, you're going to die. Secretarius, you're going to die. And on and on he goes through all the different horoscopes. And we, his point is that whatever we try to predict about our future, one thing is certain, that death is in our future. It's inevitable. But then Solomon seems to say that death makes all things equal. Now, when we think about equality, that's a positive term for our society. But Solomon actually says that this is, a, this is an evil, that it seems like death makes all things equal. He says the same event's going to happen to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. In other words, it's an evil to Solomon because it makes bad and good seemingly equal in the end. He's saying that death comes and there's really no difference. It makes all things equal to the bad and the good to the evil and the righteous. It doesn't matter if you're a model citizen or you're a model criminal. The same event happens. And Solomon kind of wrestles with this. He says, this is an evil. And it should frustrate us, right? Because in our hearts, yes, we want equality in this world, but we also want justice in this world. It should frustrate us because we should think, well, well if, if, uh, if, if we're pure in heart and we're pursuing good things, then there should be a reward and there should be a punishment for the unjust. But Solomon says that death kind of treats them both as the same. So it's inevitable, it's equal, and then he also says that it's unpredictable. Look at verse 11. He says, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, death does not give an advantage to the quick, to the strong, to the wise, to the intelligent. 
almost worse than the fact that it's equal, it's going to fall both on the good and the evil, is that it just happens. It's unpredictable. It comes. It's completely out of our control. Verse 12, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You know, sometimes in, in kind of a, a more secular, modern society, we, we just tend to think of death as something that's natural, right? Maybe you've heard that before. Like, death is just natural. It's going to happen. It's just part of life. It's part of the circle of life. It's natural. It's going to happen. Don't fear it. It's just a natural part of life. And we even see this in pop culture, right? Uh, Master Yoda in Star Wars, right? He, he says, death is a natural part of life. Uh, uh, Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec. These are great people, right, to quote. He says, death is natural, we are born, we survive as long as we're useful, and then we're killed either by our body's natural decay or by those younger and stronger, right? Now, whether it's in, in comedy or reality, we, we tend to see this a lot in our society where people just say, well, death is just part of the natural cycle of life. We don't need to fear it. It's just natural. And I think Ecclesiastes looks at this and says, bull, <laughs> right? It's not that natural. Death is actually a very fearful thing. He says it's about as natural as a net for a fish or as a snare for a bird. In other words, how he's describing death is death comes, it's unpredictable, it's sudden. It's like a murderer and a thief, it steals. And I know for many of us in this room, you may be in your 20s or your 30s, and you think, well, death is so far away from me. If I eat right, if I think right, if I live right, I can put death off as far in advance as possible. I don't need to think about it, I don't need to consider it. But Ecclesiastes reminds us that we can't forget about it. We can't just forget about it as if it's not, if it's not going to happen, right? Because we're not as in control of our, our, our lives as we think. The, the fool thinks he's in control of death because he thinks he's more in control of his life. But the text says here that we're actually not in control of it. It's unpredictable. Just because we live the good life, it doesn't necessarily favor us. And death doesn't favor the healthy either, or the intelligent, or the wise, or the fast, the swift. It's equal, it's inevitable, and it's unpredictable. So how do we deal with it then? How do, we, how do we deal with this life, with this reality of death? And that's where the rest of the text lends us to see this wisdom that we need in order to understand and live with death. Now, Ecclesiastes, oftentimes, it doesn't give us the straightforward answers we're seeking, but it does make us honestly wrestle with the tension of it. And in that, Ecclesiastes oftentimes gives us hints. It gives us clues into how we, can, how we can understand things in this world. And so we want to see these clues in this chapter. Let's look at verse 4. He says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And so he says, again, death is in your future, but, but not to fixate on death. He reminds us that death is in our future to remind us of the advantages of living here. Don't skip over this, this, this little phrase here. He says, all the living has hope. See, before we go any further, just remind us in this room that even though death is in our future, it has not come yet for you. Meaning that if you are living today, as long as you're alive, there is hope for you. If you're here and you're frustrated with life, and you think it would be better off if I was dead, if you're mad at the cards that you've been dealt in life, 
if you feel like your, your life feels pointless, God is here to remind you that even though death is in your future, it's not here yet. There is still hope for the breathing. There is still hope for those whose God is sustaining right now. So even if you're sick, if you're frustrated, if you're hurting, God has put breath in your lungs this morning. You are here. There is still hope. And in God's goodness and his providence, he has allowed you to be in this room this morning to know him. Today is a day of salvation for the living. There is hope in the living. But notice how he continues here. He doesn't just say there's hope for the living, but he gives us this, this, uh, this little phrase here. He says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, back in those days, dogs were not pets. Okay? People didn't go around kissing their dogs in the mouth or carry them in doggy strollers. Okay? Um, if you do those things, you should stop anyways. But the, the, point is, the point is that they weren't pets. They were pests. They were scavengers. They were the lowest on the totem pole, right? You didn't want to be called a dog. You didn't want to be associated with dogs. And then the lion. The lion is majestic. The lion is this noble beast. In one sense, I, I think he's saying here that an ordinary discarded life is better than a majestic death. But I think in a, another way, and perhaps even a deeper way, he's saying here that death does not favor the noble over the evil. In other words, just like a dog who was a scoundrel, who, was, who, who, who uh, didn't, didn't work for their food, but took from others, still stole from others, was the lowest on the totem pole. And what he's saying here is it's better to be a scavenger scheming your way through life than being a noble person and dying for it. He's saying here that life under the sun, again, life in the sun, if this physical world is all that we have, then it's not worth living a good life to die for it. Why? Because if life, if all we have is life under the sun, what Solomon's point is that life is our reward. What do we gain for losing it? If all we have is life under the sun, then, then better to, to live as a dog who is at least living than die as a noble lion. Because there's nothing you exchange for your life. There's no better reward. And he'll, he'll expound upon this in verse 7 through 10 where he talks about the things that we enjoy, which we'll get to towards the end. Better to be a scoundrel than to be noble. If this is all there is, if life is our reward, then to lose your life even for a virtuous cause is vanity. So just survive, right? The, the strong, eat the weak. Just survive. Extend your life, even if that means that you have to trample on other people. Even if it means that you have to be a scoundrel, a scavenger, like a dog. Now, there's a problem here with this. And that is that this, this text has... A contradiction. On one sense, with this analogy of the dog and the lion, we see that Solomon is looking at this world and he's saying, this is all there is, right? To lose your life is to lose your reward. So keep living as long as you can, even if that means you have to manipulate, steal, kill. As long as you can keep yourself alive, keep living. But on the other hand, we see Solomon, who's very angry at people who still kill and manipulate their way through life. On one hand, Solomon is saying, this life is vanity, it's meaningless, so therefore just, just keep on living as long as you can. But on the other hand, he says that there's evil here. Now, how do we reconcile these things? Well, in our hearts, whether we believe in God or not, in our hearts, there's this pulse. We just know that things are not the way they should be. Like, like there's things we see in this world, we say, that ought not to be. That, people should not act that way. 
But the contradiction is within us, the same that Solomon's dealing with here, is in one sense, we want the freedom to live however we please, but in another sense, we don't want others to have the freedom to do whatever they want to us, right? There's a contradiction here in Solomon. And the conclusion for us that pushes us kind of beyond this, I think, is, is that if you don't believe in the existence of God, you really don't have a basis for how to deal with death and evil in this world. You just don't. Because if you're like Solomon and you see that life is the only thing worth living, but then you also see there's evil, who are you going to be, where's the outrage directed towards if there's no God? Who's the basis for your outrage when you see the evil in this world? Who's the basis for trying to set the evil right? If there is no God, how do we understand this problem of evil and our reward and meaning in life? And Solomon's kind of pushing us to this point to see that life under the sun will only make sense if there is a God. If there is a just judge. Because if not, why not just live like scavengers? Why not just live as, uh, however we please as long as we can stay alive? Because if that is our reward, then just do whatever it takes. Better a living dog than a dead lion. Now the text doesn't just leave us in this kind of unsettled reality. Okay, well, um, there's, there's evil in this world, and death is an evil. It steals from us, but also living is this reward. Well, how do we come to a conclusion with this? Well, he actually gives us the, the wisdom we need at the end of this chapter. He gives us the wisdom we need in this obscure, kind of, uh, kind of weird story about this wise and poor man in verses 13 through 18. And when I first saw this and first read this, I thought, this is one of those moments where Solomon wrote something really wise. He thought, I don't know where to put this in Ecclesiastes, so I'm just going to stick it at the end of chapter 9, right? But it actually is exactly what we need to hear this morning. This is what it says. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. It was valuable to Solomon. This wise man looks at this and he says, this is great. This is a treasure. This is valuable. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Verse 15, but there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard and quiet are better than a shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Uh, there's a, a pastor uh, by the name of Sinclair Ferguson who wrote a book on Ecclesiastes, and he really helped, uh, helped, helped me understand this, this little parable, this little story. He says, there are certain aspects of the wisdom of this wise poor man that differ themselves from any other wisdom of this world. And, and some of the wisdom we've talked about already in Ecclesiastes. And he says, this is about the wisdom of the wise poor man. He says, first, this is a saving wisdom. If you look at the text, it says, by his wisdom, he delivered this city. We don't know how, but this poor wise man restores and delivers the city through his saving wisdom. And the second thing he says, this is a serving wisdom. It's interesting, right, that Solomon, who's writing this, is the wisest man alive. He was rich. He was a king. Why was he a, a wise, rich man? Because in this world, people tend to get ahead if they're wise, right? The wise in this world tend to have an advantage, an edge up on others. But notice that this guy, this poor, wise man, he's not using his wisdom to get ahead, He's using his wisdom to serve. 
But there's a third reality of this wisdom, and that is that it is forgotten and despised. That this wise poor man is forgotten and despised. Even those who benefit from his saving wisdom are neglecting him. Now, whose name comes to mind when we think of a wise man, but a poor man who became a great savior? Whose name comes to mind when we think about a wise man who was a poor man who became a great savior, but his life and his teachings were rejected, even neglected often by his followers? The person who is wisdom itself and didn't use his wisdom to get ahead in this world, but to serve. If you're not catching on yet, it's Jesus, right? This text is almost like it's a prophecy. It's almost prophetic and that it's pointing us to the reality of, of Jesus, our savior. And this is why this is so important. This is why this is the wisdom we need to understand death in this world because we don't have a God who is up in heaven who says concerning death and evil in this world, I have my reasons, just deal with it. That's not the type of God we have. We have a God who has done something unbelievable when it comes to death. The good news of the Bible is not that God has forgotten us, but in fact, we have forgotten God. And as this text began, and as Solomon is addressing the evil in this world, he says there's evil in the hearts of the, the, men of, uh, uh, the children of man, right? We all have that. We all have, we all have abandoned the one permanent thing in this world. We have forgotten God, but he has not forgotten us. And God came for us. In Christ, God came and he experienced rejection for us. He was rejected by his own, forsaken on the cross. Why? So that we can look and we can see that we have a God who is not distant or abstract from our problems, from evil, and from death. But he has come and he experienced the most unjust death for us. He experienced alienation so that we might be found. He experienced wrath so we could experience eternal life. He experienced forsakenness so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters and experience an everlasting relationship with him. He always remembers his people. He always loves his people. He never grows tired of them. He cherishes us. And when we come to understand this, it changes the way we live with death. Because now, listen, now we have good news about death. Because of the wise poor man and his saving and rescuing wisdom, we have good news about death. Because even though we have to deal with it in this world, and even though this is a hard thing to deal with in this world, God in his kindness and grace has given us a saving and rescuing wisdom from above. So that means we don't have to walk through life fooling ourselves trying to forget that death's going to happen. And we don't have to walk through life fearing it. Because Jesus Christ has transformed it. He dealt with death. Death is at the center of the Christian faith. A death that transforms everything. And if you want to be ready for death, if you want to understand, if you want to live, learn how to live wisely dealing with death and evil in this world, then make the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the center of your life. Because when it becomes the center of our lives, when we realize that even though we'll experience death at some point, the glory and majesty of Christ will prepare you for death like nothing else. Because in Christ, Jesus has done something to death. He has changed it from what we see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Instead of something that we grieve without hope with, we now grieve with hope because of Christ. Because of Christ, we no longer look at death as the beginning of nothingness, but the beginning of paradise. 
And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, as he's in prison and he's awaiting, he, he knows his death may be coming soon, and he says, hey, it's good for me, I want to stay in this world, it's good for me to stay in this world and continue to minister alongside of you and continue to encourage you, but it is great for me to be with my Savior. Why? Because for Paul and for us, because of what Jesus has done, we look at death and we see it's not the losing of our reward, it is the gaining of our reward. It is not losing everything, it is now gaining everything. So, how does this affect our living? Let's go back to verse 7 real quick. Solomon, in the middle of this chapter, he, he, he deals with death, and he comes to this place, and, and we can read verse 7, and we can see as a practical secularist that, again, if this is all there is in life, then just live it up, do, it, you know, do what you please. Uh, this is your reward. But with the wisdom that is a saving and rescuing and serving wisdom from above, we can read this and we can see how our understanding of death affects our living. He says in verse 7, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already proved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And then he goes on to talk about how to enjoy life with, with a wife whom you love all the days of your life and to work hard in this life uh, because you can't take these things with you in death. Now, Again, when we look at the wisdom that comes from the God above the sun, what we can see in these verses is that the abundant life Christ promised us doesn't begin in the future. It begins in the present. The abundant life Christ promises us doesn't begin in the future. It begins in the present. Death is coming, but it's not here yet. And what God has provided for us in this life is to enjoy it. And when we understand that death is not the end of that, then we can actually enjoy the evidences of his grace in this life. We can see the gifts that he gives us in this life. And even though they are a foretaste of eternity, they are good things to enjoy in the here and now. And so he says, go, eat, drink, right? These are commands. They're not just suggestions. When I tell my kids, go clean your room, go eat your food, right? I'm not just, although I think it's a suggestion, I'm not suggesting it to them, right? Solomon's not either here. He says, go, get up. Look, for us who know Christ in this moment, he has dealt with death for us. God is with you. God is for you. God has provided that wisdom from above, that saving wisdom from death itself. So go eat your bread with joy. In other words, enjoy a good meal every once in a while. Go and actually plan to spend more money on food than you would every once in a while. If you're an intern in the house, maybe supersize a meal or something, all right? <laughs> Just go enjoy it, right? Enjoy, enjoy the good stuff. Get, get the drink of your choice. Don't waste your time on Starbucks. Get the good stuff, right? Enjoy it in this world. Enjoy relationships in this world. Enjoy the, the, the ways in which God has, has lavished his grace upon us because Jesus, listen, Jesus has died for your sins. And he's not only just died for your sins, he has taken away your sins so that you can have everlasting joy. And we don't have to wait to experience that enjoyment. We can experience it now. And so as we come to the time of the Lord's Supper today, we reflect on death, which is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of, what Christ has done for us. We don't have to, to fear death anymore. And we also don't have to look to the little evidences of grace in this world, the, the things that God has, has caused us to enjoy. We don't have to try to find our ultimate satisfaction in those things. But in fact, we can enjoy them for the good gifts they are because they point to the great joy. They're not untethered. They're tethered to the great joy of knowing the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ, the one who has died for us. And so as we come to communion, let's look to the poor, wise man who became the great Savior. Let's look to his majesty. Let's look to his glory in our life.
And when we do that, death will be changed from something that is vanity to something that is a gain. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.